All right, as we come back to our text for today, we're in Hebrews chapter 2. And last week we began this section of 10 through 18 and focused on verse 10. And so today we're going to be looking at the three verses that follow it because they are interesting. And we ought to look at what the author is saying here as he begins to establish that Jesus became like his brethren. And so we've been walking through this letter. I want again to just recap very quickly the sections. The exordium opens the letter. That's 1, 1 through 4. Then the author gets into the argument throughout the end of chapter 1, 5 through 14, that Christ is greater than the angels. And he establishes that in seven Old Testament references. Then it begins this chapter, chapter 2, with four verses, which are an exhortation and warning against drifting away from the faith and neglecting so great a salvation. And so those are kind of the opening if you will, three parts of the letter. In verse 5 of this chapter, he goes back to the theme of Christ being greater than the angels. But he's establishing it in a different way now. He asks for which of the angels is put to rule the age to come. The answer rhetorically, none. Christ is to rule the age to come. And so we recognize this important fact that it is Christ who will rule and reign. And he grounds this on Psalm 8. And we've spoken about that at length. It's important for the rest of the work of this chapter to recognize Psalm 8 and what it's arguing. It's even important for the Scriptures today. But in essence, as we spoke about it, Psalm 8 looks back. David's looking back to creation. He says, In the vastness of creation you made all these glorious and wondrous things, and you made man a little lower than the angels. But you crowned him with glory and honor and authority. You put all things under his feet. And, of course, we know that was marred in the fall and curse. But David is also looking forward to the one who would come as the Messiah, who again would be made lower than the angels. Strange reference, it would seem. One crowned with honor and glory, and one who would have all things placed under his feet. So David looks at what has been, but will be yet again at Christ's coming. And so, again, that is Psalm 8. And then he goes on to ask the question, well, how does this happen? How does this happen? Well, for one thing, as you move forward into that, he says, all things are in subjection to him. All created things are under his feet. When I say that all things are under his feet, I mean all things. All created things under the feet of Jesus, even if we can't see it. But he says we can see this. Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. In other words, he came into this world made lower than the angels, took on humanity on, our, on a, a tent of flesh, took on a human nature, added it to his perfect divine nature, and he was crowned with glory and honor. So we went through all this, haven't we? But he suffered and he died, and then he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Then last Sunday we mentioned it begins with gar or for, And that's like, because, why did he do this? Why was this necessary? Why suffering and then exaltation? And the Cliff's Notes answer, as we said last Sunday, was because it was fitting for God to do it this way. It's the right way to do it. It's really the only way it could be done. It was fitting for him, meaning God the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What was God up to here? He sent Christ into the world who freely came. He took on a human nature, went and suffered and died in perfect obedience to the law, spotless, sinless, the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice. And he went and he was made perfect through sufferings. 
made complete through sufferings, made complete to what end? To be the perfect high priest. He can't just be the perfect sacrifice. He has to be the perfect priest to offer the sacrifice. And that's what this is saying. Now again, we looked at this last week, this for or because that links it to what's come before. We're going to see again today. And so as we get ready today, we're going to look at this on, and this mission of bringing many sons to glory, why it was necessary that he be made like us. And so I'm going to read the text again. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, we're going to continue on next week beyond this, and he'll begin to tie this together, but there's important reasoning given to us in these verses as the author quotes three Old Testament verses, and we're going to uh, take a look at that today. And as we do, I want us to bring our attention to verses 11 through 13, although we need to keep in mind 10, and we're going to look at two points. First of all, the author's declaration, and second of all, his scriptural support. And that's a very simple outline, but it's exactly what he's doing here. He's making a a declaration of why this must be, and he's going to give you three scriptures and say, here's the foundation you can base this on. Here's the foundation. All right, so we're going to begin with the author's declaration. We're going to begin where the text begins. And notice that this verse, like the previous one, begins again in in the Greek here with gar or for. For. And this word can mean for or because. And as we said last week, When you come to verse 10, we had just heard that Christ was made Lord in the angels in fulfillment of Psalm 8. He suffered the the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He might, by the grace of God, taste death for everyone. Well, why would that need to be? Well, as we said a moment ago, because it was fitting to do so. It was fitting for God to do it in this way. Well, likewise, we just learned that it was fitting for God to do it in this way, to uh, send Christ into the world for him to go through many sufferings and to be exalted in bringing many sons to glory, to make him perfect as the captain of their salvation through many sufferings. Now we would say, why? Why? I mean, you're giving us verse after verse, you're explaining it, but it's still, why is this necessary? Why is it necessary for Christ to be fully human? Why is it necessary? We get that he's fully divine and that must be For if he was a fallen sinner like us, he could not be the perfect sacrifice. But why must he also be fully man? Why is that necessary? And the answer is given to you here in the text. Because both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Now this establishes a biblical principle in the text. The one who is offering the sanctification or the consecrating sacrifice and the people who are being consecrated or sanctified by it must be of one. They must be alike. Now, we've been hitting at this heavily for a couple of weeks. In fact, if you read through the end of the chapter, it tells you exactly why this is true. That he had to be made, if you look at the very end of the chapter, like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, without being like us, 
He can't be our merciful and perfect high priest. And even at the end, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, this is verse 18, he is able to aid those who are tempted. How can he be a perfect minister as a high priest for us? He shared in our experiences. He knows what it's like. We talked about this a little bit the last couple of weeks, but as a minister, it's often hard to counsel somebody who's in a situation you've never been in. You try to empathize. You try to use what experience you have. But it can be difficult. It can be difficult. But many of you have been in situations where you turn to someone who had been in a similar situation, someone who had walked that same road, and you know sometimes the help and comfort they can give you because they have been where you've been. They've walked where you've walked. If Christ is to be our perfect high priest, he has to walk where we've walked. He has to have experienced what we've experienced. He has to be tempted and tried as we are, yet remain without sin to be the perfect sacrifice. You have to keep all of this together to understand what the Scriptures are teaching us here. And so again, why was all this necessary? Because if He is going to be the one who sanctifies us through His sacrifice, He has to be like us. The one who is sanctifying has to be like the one He's sanctifying. Now, this is a pattern in the Old Testament, right? You don't think about it as you're reading it, but from whom were the priesthood selected? From among men, right? Yes, a particular tribe of Israel, but it was men. Men were the high priests for men. Men represented men to a holy and righteous God. And the prophets the same way. Men represented God to men. What makes Christ so unique and this whole idea of mediation is that Christ can perfectly mediate because He is God and man. He's the perfect high priest because he can stand in the presence of God without end because he is God. And yet he can represent us faithfully because he knows us because he became a man and shared in our experiences. And so again, this is what the author means when he says that through sufferings, God was making him perfect. It doesn't mean Christ wasn't perfect. It means he made him complete, ready for the task given to him. He shared in our experiences. He became like us. He was tempted and tried in all ways, yet without sin. And therefore, having given his life, he is the captain of our salvation, the author of our salvation, the perfect high priest. Now, all this is implied. And he says in this, because of going through all this, that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He means us. He isn't ashamed to call us his brothers. Now, if you think about it for a moment, that's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? Christ, perfectly holy, without sin, looks at me and says, I'm not ashamed to call him my brother. This is a glorious truth of the gospel that we are made righteous in him and he is not ashamed to call us part of his family, the children of God. He is not ashamed to call us that. His incarnate mission was focused on this very thing that he would come into the world that we might receive the adoption of sons. That's what Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. That in the fullness of time, Christ was born under a woman, under the law, that he might redeem those under the law that they might have the adoption of sons. It's the very same idea. Christ came into the world to make a way that we might be adopted into the family of God. And that's all he's saying here. Christ is not ashamed that that happened. It's the very reason for which he came into the world. 
to save sinners, and to bring them into the family of God. We've spoken many times about the wonder of what this tells us. They're very much like the prodigal son who thought, I'll I'll go back and I'll be a servant in my father's household. But the father had other ideas, didn't he? He said, I'm not worthy to be called a son. No, he wasn't. But by his father's grace, his father said, I'll receive you back as a son. I'll receive you back uh, with all the trappings, all the authority that comes with being a son. And in the same way, here he says, he is not ashamed to receive us as sons. God is not. He made a way that it's possible. It was His plan. It was what He had been doing. And Christ is not ashamed to call us His brothers. It's the very reason for which He came into the world, to redeem a people who would be the children of God. Now, that's a lot to say. And all of it is true. All of it is true. And yet, there's a couple of things that we need to recognize here in this text because as we've been walking through this, we see a couple of points of logic that are given to us in applying Psalm 8 to this text. The first is that Christ became like mankind. He became like us. He took on flesh. He became a man. And in that sense, never giving up, by the way, His divinity. Perfect and full divinity and perfect and full humanity joined together in one person. Now, this is what we know. And in this sense, He became like us, like human beings. But the text begins to switch the focus along the way here. From saying brothers in the sense of all humanity, that he became like us in the sense that he was made lower than the angels. And begins to focus on the fact that the brethren he's speaking about now are those who are in the family of God. And you see that here because he says, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. He's talking about his brothers made brothers by the grace of God as they've put their faith in Christ. So he's talking about the people of God. These are the, this is the use of brethren now that he's moving toward. Those who are actually saved, those who are the children of God, his brethren he calls them. And you'll see that. That's very important to note as we walk through the rest of these verses. You will see this clearly denoted as he begins to use these Old Testament scriptures to have you think about what's being said here. And so we want to think about that. He came in order, if you will, to redeem people and to have them as a family, to have them as brethren. He's not ashamed that they are. But who are these brethren we're now referring to? Those who are His. Those who are part of the people of God. Now, if we're going to say such a thing that He came into the world, He must take on flesh, and He's not ashamed to call us His brethren, the author says, I've got to support that from the Scriptures. Now, we would argue it's self-evident from the New Testament, but uh, he's speaking to some Jewish Christians that are thinking about moving back into Judaism. This is why he consistently is quoting from the Old Testament Scriptures, which would be the only completed Bible that they had at that time, the, uh, the Tanakh or Old Testament. And so he's going to turn there. Now he says, Christ actually identified with his people. Christ identified, and you could say identifies in the present, with his people, with his brethren. Now, he even goes so far as to say that, that he calls them brethren and is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, you can imagine that the Jewish hearers, this was a big struggle for them. Don't you think it's strange that your Messiah was crucified? Don't you think it's strange that your Messiah, God's anointed one, was sent into the world and he died? Don't you think it's strange... 
He not only died, he died in the most cursed way possible. Don't you think that's strange? We know this was a stumbling block for the Jews. They could not believe that God would send a Messiah who came into the world to die. Many people still have difficulty with this, don't they? Jews and non-Jews. Paul said it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Greeks. And again, you can see that in the world today. So isn't that strange? Isn't that strange to be the Messiah and your candidate for Messiahship is one who died in a cursed way? Not at all, says our author. Not at all. It's not strange at all if you understand biblical theology. If you understand what the Old Testament's been teaching you all along, it's not strange at all. The people needed a perfect priest. A perfect priest. Not a better priest. Not a marginally better priest or even a much better priest. They needed a perfect priest. You know, oftentimes we focus on the perfect sacrifice. Christ, the the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, He absolutely was that. But we miss that the author of Hebrews says, yes, but who is going to offer that perfect sacrifice? Who is it going to be? Pilate? The disciples? No, you needed someone who could, as the author of Hebrews would let us say, offer this in the heavenly sanctuary. Who is it? that could offer this perfect sacrifice? And the answer is Christ and only Christ. Only Christ. He is the only one who could offer it. And so again, if you understand that, He had to become our high priest. He had to come into the world and suffer and be tempted and tried and be like us that He might represent us faithfully before God. Now, that's going to be given in much more depth in future chapters. We know that, but keep that in mind. And for that to happen, this author says he must identify with his people. He must identify with his people. The entire mission for which he came hinges on that fact. Again, why do we say every Christmas, we have a sermon every Christmas, reemphasizing the importance of the incarnation. Why? Because the author of Hebrews would tell us without it, it all falls apart. It all falls apart. If Christ is just God who came into the world appearing to be a man, He cannot be the perfect high priest. He cannot die, so He couldn't be the perfect sacrifice. He couldn't be the perfect prophet or king. He couldn't be any of these things. It is not a doctrine that we can just say, eh, it's uncomfortable, let's just push it to the side. It's like a house of cards. You pull that one out, it all falls. It all falls. And that's why this author is spending an entire letter telling you why it will fall and why it's necessary. He had to become like his brothers, he says. He had to become like us. And in that way, and for that reason, he identifies with us. And even something more amazing, he calls us his brethren and is not ashamed to identify with us. Okay, now we come to the point we've got to say, what are you basing that on? What are you basing that on? How can you say that he isn't ashamed to call us brethren? Even if we go along with you, that... Christ is fully God, came into the world, took on flesh, took on our humanity, fully God and fully man in one person, and that He died for us. How can you say He calls us brethren? And how can you say, how can you say that He isn't ashamed to call us brethren? And the author of Hebrews says, easy. I'll quote him. I'll quote him. So where does he go? Psalm 22. Now, many of you know Psalm 22 not just because it's in front of the most famous psalm uh, of them all, but because Psalm 22 is often called the psalm of the cross. 
And it was seen from the very earliest days as a messianic psalm. A psalm which looked to the suffering that the the righteous sufferer would, would endure, that the Messiah would endure. Now they didn't know on the cross, and they didn't later accept on the cross, but but it was often seen, even in the days before Jesus, this was a psalm that was speaking in some way of the Messiah. And if you read that psalm, it is remarkable. All the details that are in that psalm that line up with the crucifixion of Christ, not least of which is it begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then talks about the anguish and those who are at the at his feet, who are gambling away his garments. All these things that we know uh, from Christ's crucifixion are found there, prophesied through David by the Holy Spirit long before they ever happened. And in this psalm, and again, I would encourage you to read it today. In this psalm, there comes this moment where he's crying out for help, and God answers him. And what does he say? This messianic figure says, I will declare your name, God's name, and I will sing praise to you. First of all, I will declare your name, Father. I will declare your name, and I will sing your praise. Well, where will he do this? First of all, he declares his name to his brethren. So again, the author of Hebrews says, here's Jesus himself referring to his people as his brethren. Now, he does something even more interesting. In this text, we can't see it very easily in our English translations, but he's quoting the Septuagint. And just recognize that when this author is quoting the Old Testament, he's quoting the Septuagint. He's quoting the Greek Old Testament. The Greek Old Testament. And that matters because there's different renderings in the Septuagint oftentimes than the Masoretic uh, or Hebrew Old Testament. And this is one of them. Because when the translators were translating into Greek... And they came to that word assembly. They translated it as ecclesia. Ecclesia. Now many of you may know that word from just sermons and so forth. But this is the word that the church has always called itself. The called out people of God. Those who are called by God. Those who are assembled. That's what it means to literally the assembled ones. Called out and assembled. Now it's interesting because... Uh, When the Septuagint was written, this didn't have any Christian connotations. But by the time this letter is written, it sure does. The church was saying, we are the ecclesia. We are the called out ones. We are the ones who God has pulled out and set apart as a holy people. As Peter says, a priesthood, right? A, a, A priesthood unto God. We are the ones that are called out. The author of Hebrews is playing on a very interesting thing here that the Septuagint, he says identifies the brethren as the church, right? As the people of God. Those who have placed their faith in Christ, those are His people. Now he's saying this to Hebrew Christians who have entered the church and are kind of backing away from it. Backing away from it. And he says, even Psalm 22 testifies that Christ was referring to the people that would come in by faith in Him. Through this very way, what He has accomplished, His perfect sacrifice and his perfect priesthood. So he turns first there. Now, this second quotation, verse 13, if you're just reading this, you go, what in the world? I will put my trust in him. What does that have to do with calling people brethren or his sacrifice? What is this about? Well, it's pretty interesting because 
A couple of things we want to note really quick is that verse 13 has two quotations. Notice he separates them. And again, I will put my trust in him. Separates it again. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, if you want to take a moment and flip to Isaiah chapter 8, you'll see these are successive verses. These are back-to-back verses in Isaiah. Why would you not just run them together and quote them as one scripture? And I think the reason we have to assume is he's making two different points in each of these quotations. And it's going to be very important for us to think about that. And as you're turning there to look at it in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to remember something. If you're here during Romans, I've quoted this in Hebrews as well. I've probably quoted this like a thousand times through the years. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, one of the ways people get really confused and messed up is they think the quotation is just the verse being quoted. And we tried in Romans to show, the commentators say it's not clear what Paul is getting at. Well, I don't believe God gave us a word that isn't supposed to be understood. If he's quoting the Old Testament, it is to clarify what he's saying. So how can it be that it would muddy the water? The Old Testament reference is to help you understand what Paul is arguing now. And it is cleared up generally. In fact, every time, if you remember going through Romans, when you go back and look at the extended passage from which the quotation is coming, Paul is using that quote as shorthand to say, go back and read this passage. Most famous because of this quotation, perhaps. But go back and read this passage. And it'll be cleared up. And we could give a dozen examples in Romans where the commentators run in circles saying, it's just not clear, it's not clear, it's not clear. And yet, if you just walk back to the text and think about the extended text, it makes perfect sense what Paul is arguing. Perfect sense. The same thing here. Commentators go, I will put my trust in him. It must be that it's saying that Jesus trusted God like we, we, like we are called to. Well, yes, that's included here, but there's a bigger point that he's making in Isaiah chapter 8 in both of these quotations. Now, if you have your Bible and you've turned to Isaiah chapter 8, I'm going to ask you for a moment, because we don't have time to go in depth. We have a whole sermon on just part of this online. Isaiah chapter 7, very famous passage of scripture that will help set where we're at. Isaiah is called by God to go to King Ahaz. We've preached this sermon many times at Christmas time. Ahaz is concerned, deeply grieved, deeply troubled by what he's heard. There is an alliance coming made up of the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, and they're going to join together and come in and conquer Ahaz's country of Judah and place a pretender on the throne who will ally with them against Assyria. You may remember all this from Christmas's past. And Isaiah goes and says, don't do this. Don't make an alliance with these troublemakers. Don't make an alliance. In fact, what he's really going to do, he's wanting to make an alliance with Assyria against them. It's a plausible idea in the real world, isn't it? We do these sorts of things all the time. The enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of mentality. But Isaiah sent by God to King Ahaz to say, don't do it. Do not make an alliance. These two nations you fear today, the northern kingdom of Israel and and Syria, he calls them smoking firebrands. You know what a smoking firebrand is? A piece of wood that's starting to go out. You know, when a fire is hot, there's not much smoke. But when it starts going out, that smoke really starts pouring out. What he's saying is, these enemies that look so powerful today in just a very short time will be nothing. They'll be gone. In fact, what he says is, Thus saith the Lord, this shall not stand. Like the threat to 
to Jerusalem and to Judah will not stand. It will not happen. The northern kingdom and Syria will not conquer you. And Isaiah says, God wants you to trust Him. Not turn to Assyria, turn to Him. And all you have to do, if you want to be convinced of this, is ask for a sign. Anything, anything you want. No matter how great, no matter how small, ask for the sign that would convince you. And God will do it. Remember what Ahaz does? Some false piety. Oh, I, I would never, never, you know, tempt or trust, or uh, I would never test God in this way. I would never do this. It's false piety, isn't it? Can you believe? Here's a man who's saying he will not test God who isn't trusting in God. He's trusting in Assyria. And so Isaiah has those famous words. He says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And we know that great messianic promise of a child that will be born, that will be named Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter 8 takes place in context of that, of an Israel that is, uh, excuse me, a Judah that is in apostasy. It's not just their king. The nation has no interest in the prophetic word of God. No interest in Isaiah's ministry. No interest in the prophets that are with him. No interest in any of it. Nothing. Now we're not surprised as we read through the text. Chapter 6. Isaiah says, here I am, God, send me. What's the mission? What am I signing up for? You're going to preach to a people who having ears will not hear, having eyes will not see. They're not going to respond. Isaiah says what any of us would. Well, how, how long, O oh Lord, am I assigned this ministry? He says, until the cities are laid waste. You will preach the message of salvation until judgment comes. But, though the tree is cut down, life will remain in the stump. God says, I'm keeping my promise alive. Now, as I said, we'd be here hours if we tried to exposit all this. What is he talking about? He's talking about the idea of a remnant. God will keep a people alive for his promise. For his promise. It won't all be lost. My promise is certain. It's sure. It will not be lost. Though it looks like it might be lost. I will keep it alive. I will keep it alive. This is very important in understanding Isaiah. And in a way, what this author is doing through it. So just very quickly, bear with me. In Chapter 8, no one is listening. I'm going to ask you instead of me working through it because we'll be here another 30 minutes. Read it today. Read it tomorrow. Read it. Read what's said here. Isaiah recognizes no one's listening. No one is responding to the message. So what does he say? He says, bind up the prophecies. Bind them up. Tie them up. Put them away. He's speaking to this prophetic group he's got with him. Take the scrolls, take the revelations, bind them up and put them away. Put them away. Seal your disciples, O Lord. It's going to stay with us. And the prophecies are going to be put away. And then one day when judgment comes, this unbelieving people will have these scrolls pulled back out. And they'll see firsthand, everything I said that was going to happen, happened. Everything. Everything. God is faithful and he kept his word. So what is Isaiah saying in 
verse 13, that is being applied to the words of Jesus. Jesus, in His earthly ministry, put His trust in Him, in the Lord. He came as a man. He lived by faith. All these things, fully divine, yes. But He lived as one on His Father's timetable, trusting in His Father's plan, about His Father's business. He lived by putting His trust in Him. And this reference to Isaiah, which is another level of this, is of a people who lived in very dark times, saying, how do we proceed? Do we become like the world? Do we do what everybody else is doing? Or do we say, no, we are going to continue to put our trust in God? Isaiah said, I will put my trust in Him. Now look at that last quotation. And again, you see why it takes so long to get through these things because there is so much meant in each of these quotations that oftentimes as preachers we just skip right over them. You know, here's a couple of quotes. We're not really sure how they apply. Keep moving. And the author wants you to think about what's being said here and how it reflects on what he's telling you. The final quotation, which comes from the very next verse in Isaiah. So we were at verse 17. Now we're at verse 18. What does he say? Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, he again is taking the words of Isaiah and applying them to Jesus. He's saying that Jesus said these words. Now, we might ask, how is he doing this? How is he taking Isaiah's words and making them the words of Jesus? Well, I think the author wants you to remember all this is the Word of God. All this is the Word of God. If it's inspired by God uh, and and it's here for us, he's saying it is as if Jesus said this. Jesus said, here am I and the children, meaning those who have been saved and adopted into the family of God, who God has given to me. Now, that's a a basic understanding, again, of saying, even the Scriptures testify to this, that we were made children of God and brethren of Christ in what He did. But again, in the fuller layer of what's being said here, Isaiah has something important to say. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 8, and you take your time walking through this, Isaiah basically is saying that although the scrolls are bound up, And although the disciples are sealed, and in some ways his ministry continues, but not in the same way, he says, what is the way God will preach to the nation? What is the way God will continue to preach through me to the peoples? He says, it's this way, here am I and the children God has given me. Now you may remember very well that Isaiah's name means God is salvation. And he had two children, Shiara Jashub, that's a very interesting name, I want to come back to that one, and Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, you don't hear many people give these names when they want to find a biblical name for their children. Uh, Maher Shalal Hashbaz means spoil quickly, plunder speedily. And it's again a prophetic word to what's going to happen in accordance with God's word. But that second name is very interesting, it's really the first name here. It means a remnant shall return. And again, Isaiah's own children were named by God to be a message to the people. Destruction is coming. It's inevitable. But God's promise is sure. God's promise is sure. Even through dark times, God's promise is sure. He will keep a remnant alive. That's an important biblical theological point, isn't it? 
Paul in Romans 9 through 11 says in answer to kind of the question, why are there so few Jews in the church? He says, have you not read what it says of Elijah? That he told him that there was a remnant alive. He said, so it is at the present moment. There is a remnant yet alive, keeping alive the promise of God. And this is an important idea. Now, what does it mean here? Try to be very quick here. What does it mean? What he's saying, I believe, is in the darkest of days, God keeps his promise alive. In the darkest of days, we recognize that we are either in that promise or not. And what I think he's warning these people is the people of God stand tall and stand fast even in difficult times. Even in difficult times. Isaiah did it. The prophets who were with him did it. His children did it. His wife did it. And you can look at a thousand other examples in the scriptures where people stood like Noah, a preacher of righteousness in an unrighteous generation, and stood by faith and did not give in to the world around them. Now, as I close, I want to ask you why that might be an important message in this context. He's speaking to a group of Hebrew Christians, at least have called themselves Christians, who were trying to go, let's go back to the synagogue where it's a little safer. And you can imagine somebody asking, why would you do that? And they say, well, have you not seen the world we live in? It's a dark, it's a sinful world, it's an unrighteous world, it's a dangerous world. And there's a threat when we come to church, there is a danger when we come to church, there is a danger to us. It's a little safer in the synagogue. It's a little bit safer over there. And, and after all, it's the same God, why can't we just go back there? And we've established his argument on why you can't. But understand the point here. Jesus associates with his brethren. Those who place their faith in him. Those who he came and experienced life like, except without sin, living a life of faithfulness himself. Those who trust in God are his people. And those people stand firm in trouble. Recognize that by slinking away to safety, you are saying you don't belong with us. You are testifying. We're not testifying. You are testifying that you don't belong with us. My friends, I think this is yet another word of warning. Are you a part of the people of God in this present difficult age? Or are you a fair-weather Christian that when things get tough, you're gone? Now, I don't have to work very hard to apply this today, do I? As the world is changing radically, things are getting very different. It's getting more and more uncomfortable to be a Christian. It may get far, far worse. We need to remember scriptures like this in dark days. Where do we stand? With whom do we stand? Do we stand as a people who recognize we weren't promised an easy road by God? But if we're His, we will stand firm and recognize that in it, God is giving a testimony to the world around. Just as Isaiah could say, Here am I and the children whom God has given me, and those children are a sign unto the world that there is a remnant that God is protecting to keep His promise alive. I think the author of Hebrews says the church is the exact same thing. We are a picture to the world that God is active in the world and He has a promise that will be fulfilled. It's why last Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper, we say we remember His death until He comes. There are promises yet to be fulfilled. 
And we, as a body, His brethren, the children of God, are a sign to the world that that is absolutely true. So my friends, what this author is telling us is, if you're a part of this body, Christ's body, rejoice and stand fast.